Covington Woods is this beautiful ancient woodland of which there are 108 being destroyed by HS2. And it's just really magical. It's like really, really diverse, quiet, really wet sort of woodland. So mosses and lichens and yeah, really powerful, beautiful woodland. And, and waking up to the dawn chorus there was just so beautiful. Like literally at the time, my alarm for my phone, I got a dawn chorus, but of course it was an automatic thing from iPhone or whatever. So it was the tropical rainforest dawn chorus. Waking up at Covington, I recorded the dawn chorus and then had that as my wake up because it's literally our Amazon, you know, like the dawn chorus really brought that home to me. You know, we talk about one of our slogans with um, the HS2 campaign is this is our Amazon because it's our biodiversity store, it's our carbon store, you know, and it's absolutely true, you know, and that, that really brought it home to me. So Covington Woods was just magical. Like, yeah, the dawn chorus in Covington Woods really like connected with me in such a way as yeah really powerful the evidence is clear we are in an unprecedented earth emergency this is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world this is the challenge for all of humanity this must stop now civil disobedience non-violence this is a moment of choice decolonize decarbonize we're going to rebel scientific realism has to win extinction rebellion extinction rebellion extinction rebellion i'm going to read something that i wrote now which is a protest poem it's a poem called Heartwood. I gave it to the protesters in Sheffield where they were resisting council plans to cut down up to 17,000 street trees in that city to deforest a city which sounds like an impossibility but is very easily turned into a reality. So I wrote them a poem, I gave it to the city for free. It was turned into incredible art by Nick Hayes, an artist who's in the audience tonight and by Jackie Morris, another incredible artist, artist of the lost words. And the poem and its art have spread. They've been used now in protests against tree cutting, unnecessary tree felling in Hyderabad, in Mumbai, in India. It's been translated into Telugu. And the art carries its own power too. Here goes Heartwood. Would you hew me to the Heartwood cutter? Would you leave me open-hearted? Put an ear to my bark cutter, hear my saps mutter, mark my heartwoods beat. I'm gonna keep going over that noise, my leaves flutter. Would you turn me to timber cutter? Leave me nothing but a heap of logs, a pile of brash. I am a world cutter. I am a maker of life, drinker of rain, breaker of rocks, caster of shade, eater of sun. I am timekeeper, breath giver, deep thinker, cutter. I am a city of butterflies, a country of creatures. But my world takes years to grow, cutter, and seconds to crash. Your saw can fell me, your axe can bring me low. Do you hear these words I utter? I ask this of you. Have you, Heartwood, cutter? Have those who sent you? That is hard. Thank you. Welcome to episode 19 of the Extinction Rebellion podcast, which I'm pleased to say is approaching a quarter of a million listens. I'm Jessica Townsend, and this episode is all about the heroic efforts going into protecting those amazing living beings that we call trees, both here and also in the Amazon. 
The poem we just heard was written and read by Robert McFarlane, speaking in Trafalgar Square as part of the 2018 inaugural Writers Rebellion event. And right at the beginning of the episode, we heard Dr. Larch Mackey, a longtime member of XR, who is a key figure in the HS2 protests. And right now he is literally holed up in a tunnel underneath the Euston Square Gardens. And this episode is about people like him working to protect our forests today. And my co-presenter today, who you just heard, is a familiar voice and face to XR Rebels, as he's often doing live streams at our events. Hi, Virgil. Hello, Jessica. So you interviewed Larch the other day. Let's go back to the beginning. Who is Larch? Uh, Larch is a leading HS2 environmental tree protester. He's also a member of Extinction Rebellion. And he is now dedicating his life to the protection of the environment and to the planet. And Fergal, since you did the interview with Larch, there's been quite a lot of development at the site. One of the things that he couldn't tell you in the interview was that they had dug a series of tunnels underneath Euston Square, where he's now holed up. Can you give us some latest news on that? Well, he actually did tell me about the tunnel, but I had to had to keep it top secret. They've dug a 100-foot tunnel under Houston Square Gardens, where currently five of them are holed up in awful conditions. We've had severe rain yesterday, so surface water and mud is now filling parts of the tunnel. Uh, the workmen are actually continuing to work above ground where the tunnel and the it's actually facing collapse. So it's, a, it's an extreme health and safety risk, so much so I call the health and safety executive and the fire brigade yesterday. So as we record this podcast, we're all really worried about Larch because he's in these tunnels and there's a threat that they're going to collapse. But the interview that you're just about to hear took place last week and in it, Larch is going to tell us in detail why he does this work and what motivates him. This park is threatened by HS2. There are over 10,000 trees that are threatened by HS2 and including many trees in one of the 108 ancient woodlands that are threatened and the you know, 33 triple SIs. But this site is so visible. It's, where, it's in London where people live, where the media are. Um, people care about their parks quite rightly in London. This park is where homeless people live. It's where everyone locally enjoys. It cleans the pollution from the busy Euston Road. It provides a vital bit of nature connection for people in this busy urban environment and so I'm here because it's the best opportunity we've got right now to help stop HS2 to kind of really catapult the campaign against HS2 to the top of the agenda nationally and that's what we need to do as part of stopping the climate and ecological emergency so I'm very much here to stop the climate and ecological emergency to help use HS2 as a, as a springboard to stop the wider system that's created HS2 because it's strategic because it's tactical. Obviously, you're, 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 you're a tree protector and you spent a considerable amount of time in the September Rebellion, the Extinction Rebellion, in central London, opposite the Houses of Parliament. You occupied a tree for, I believe, was it 10 days? 20 days, yeah. 20 days. Yeah. Sorry about that. Could you just uh, talk a little bit about your experience of being in a tree for 20 days in Parliament? Oh, it was brilliant. It was definitely a unique sort of, it was a life-changing experience. There were three of us up there for the first 10 days. And I think it was a life-changing experience for all of us. 
and I chose to carry on right, you know, right until day 20. Uh, but it's always really amazing to live in a tree, really, you know, spend time in a tree. I, you know, for me, a tree is another being, you know, um, and I treat all beings with respect. So I wouldn't necessarily climb a tree unless it was for a wider kind of issue to sort of, you know, in that case, to highlight the climate emergency, to try and put pressure on Parliament to pass the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. But it's such a privilege to be in a tree and spend that time with another being and also to see the Parliament Square throughout each day from a different perspective, you know, from up in the trees, with, you know, up there with the birds and the insects and seeing the day, seeing the dawn, seeing the dusk, um, seeing the passers-by, getting to know people because I would climb down to a low branch and chat with people every day. And that was really, really lovely experience, getting all the support from people. That was a major part of, of what kept us going, really, was the support we got was incredible. Just seeing the difference you make by being there, showing people by your symbolic action how important this is. You know, if you're making that sacrifice of your comfort, then it shows it's an important issue. It's not just an academic thing of, oh, it's terrible, we're all going to die. It's like, actually, it's real. And then what can I do about that to encourage people to start asking that of themselves as well? Wow, amazing. 20 days in the tree in Parliament Square. And you were sharing it with Gandhi and the other statues. And, and you had this pulse that was going on because in the evening, everybody was kicked out of the square. A lot of people getting arrested. You had a bird's eye view of all the activity. So what was it like then, just like in, in the middle of the night when it was just silence and the stars are, you know, you're talking about, could you see sun, sunrises, sunsets? Yeah, exactly. It was really nice. Like nature is everywhere. We are nature. So even in a busy urban environment like that, you know, you've still got the natural cycles happening. Like, yeah, dawn. It's really beautiful time at dawn when it's really quiet. Um, and yeah, like you say, see, seeing it like with, during the rebellion for the first sort of week or so to 10 days of, of being up the tree yeah we've got the rebellion going as well the rhythm of that and I think it was great to give a boost to the rebellion like when all of us because initially there were like eight women got up the trees um, and I was just there to support them and help rig the walkways um, and there was a real massive lift as the crowd as, as, as these women were getting up the trees it was really powerful and I think the the action of being up in the trees really helped to boost that the whole rebellion and gave people a symbolic sort of fixed point you know because a lot of people are like oh how what's this rebellion going to look like how are we going to do this but the, the the tree occupation kind of was it was an anchor point for people to go oh that's happening still yeah and, and then kind of would come and support us there and then go off and do actions or whatever and come and tell us about them later and yeah it was really great i, I was i was actually at the bottom while, while you're actually climbing up and i was there for the whole it was, it was a very intense experience and it was like the the race of trying to get your your next foothold put the you know your next rope around the, the branch and slowly it, it was it was it was an unbelievable thing to actually watch you know and meanwhile like obviously there was circles of police and they're trying to stop it and i think the first person went up there was a ladder put up and they grabbed the person down and then like you just materialized out of nowhere like a like spider-man <laughs> yeah it was it was one of those actions where um i mean we'd been planning it for a couple of weeks and a lot of prep had gone into it a lot of people were training up from not from fairly novice climbers training up to be able to do the action and but typically i was like running around crazy busy beforehand so i hadn't had anywhere near the time to prep as i'd liked so suddenly yeah we're there in the in the morning we're there all ready with our bags and trying to work out the last minute details of getting everyone herding the cats to get everyone lined up and ready to go and then we were in the square twiddling our thumbs for an hour or two waiting for the right moment and that was quite a, a great experience you know like, I always remember that before any of the big rebellions where you're there and like when do you go like at what point do you go it's always quite a, a kind of buzzy time that yeah 
if you leave it too long, you'll get rumbled, you know. And the first time we tried to get up the tree that I was due to get up, the police got on top of us and we didn't get up here. Yeah. But I ended up then spotting an opportunity and got get up in a different tree and, and, and supporting there, you know. So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was quite, And it was actually much harder to get up, you know, with all of that. It was like climbing is often about staying calm in, in, in pressure situations and that was an ultimate pressure situation you've got this massive crowd all these police everyone watching you doing this thing that you hadn't really practiced very much it was quite uh, intense but it was fun yeah it was really great wow and with trees the quickest simple solution we can do today is stop cutting them down exactly do you know what I mean it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. as simple as that yeah. it's a two pronged thing stop cutting trees and, and you know destroying biodiversity destroying nature and stop putting the fossil fuels into the into the, into the atmosphere those are the two things yep. we have to stop and then we can start the, the the massive task of you know healing and repair healing repair and and sequenting carbon you know uh, plants animals soils and trees are vital for this and our oceans yeah and it's estimated we, we need to we've got about 3.3 trillion trees what we think is we need to have another three or four trillion. Exactly. We've, we've decimated the planet. You know, we've, we've, like the UK, you know, was massively forested. We've wiped out most of that. It's one of the most denuded countries in the world. The solutions all exist. What we lack is political will. Yeah. One of those key solutions, you know, once we've stopped the harm, is to re reforest, rewild. You know, nature, when left to its own devices, locks up carbon. That's how we created the Holocene. Life created the Holocene over thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, by locking up carbon. And so we've now been releasing that, obviously, with the Industrial Revolution over the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. But we can lock it up again. Uh, we can get down from, you know, 412 parts per million and climbing mm -hmm. back to a safe level. We can, if we all work together. Yeah, and, and this is where your, your doctor title comes in. Yeah, my PhD Sorry. was in, in sustainability. I focused on specialising that within geography department, yeah. yeah. I've worked, I had the privilege of working with some of the best scientists in the world, and so been actively on the front of the forefront of the science over the last 20 years as this crisis has unfolded, you know, and, and that, that's why I'm a social scientist, but I've worked with glaciologists and, and all sorts of physical scientists as well. You've gone then from teaching and lecturing to living in trees, getting arrested. Um, I, I saw you got, you got your finger broken. That was a, that was very graphic. Uh, so you're literally putting yourself on the forefront. Um, I'm looking around here in Houston Square and you've got these uh, tree huts up here with like ropes going across from tree to tree. And uh, I'm just going to point out this one over here looks really high. Yeah, that's called... Uh, uh, it's a platform we're looking yeah, at. This, the, the tree is called a tree of heaven. That's the type of tree. So that's called heaven is that, that name we've given to that tree house. Uh, yeah, so there's a platform there which can sleep sort of four or five people. Then above it, there's a little sky palace which can sleep a couple of people. So, um, yeah, we're aiming to get you know a good good few people up there for the eviction, try and defend that tree because uh, that's due to be felled. One of the many trees in this square that's due to be felled. Yeah. And how how high is that platform? Um, that platform is about 65 feet, something like that, 70 feet. The one above it is slightly higher, maybe 70 or 80 feet. Yeah. So they've, they've literally built a platform at kind of the, the crown of the tree, which is very impressive. And it's all interconnected with, uh, you've got climbing ropes between the different trees. There's a structure right behind us here of uh, uh, good use of crates. It's, uh, it's created like a, a crated village where- We're calling it Buckingham Pallets. So yeah, we've made this, um, uh, all of this, lot, most of the stuff we've, we've made is from is reclaimed materials. So waste wood, skip materials, 
and yeah we've managed to make this beautiful big pallet home out of it it's like a community center where a lot number of us live we have we give we will, every night we get homeless people coming up in the, in the square asking for accommodation and food and so we've got various tents and food that we give them and this is our hub from which we do that obviously as the eviction approaches we're also having to have it as a fortress against against the eviction but we're still very much using it as a community hub to support homeless people and you know to just you know, provide information to the community to, to do whatever we can to make this square as safe and, and welcoming as we can. And now we're going to speak to Beth Pitts, who is a writer who has been working with Indigenous communities in Ecuador since 2013, especially those defending the Amazon from oil exploitation. Beth is part of Riders Rebellion team, and she is super excited by the possibilities of uniting the two forces that give her the most hope for the future indigenous nature defenders and extinction rebellion it was the most magical experience i've ever had in my life especially one night we um went out in a dugout paddle canoe on a jungle lagoon at night under the most beautiful stars i'd ever seen with the jungle chorus of insects and frogs singing and um, on the surface of the lagoon with um, enormous lily pads and all the lily pads were lit up with millions of fireflies. And it was the most magical experience I've ever had. And I continued traveling around the world for another nine months across four continents, but it was that experience in the Amazon which was um, the most magical of all. And during that trip, the next day after that, that lagoon experience, our guide, it was a rainy day, so we couldn't do the walk that we planned. And our guide, who was a, a Quechua man, an indigenous man, um, gave us a talk about oil exploitation in the Amazon and the damage that it's causing. And it was such a shock after having such a beautiful experience the day before that this talk that he gave lit a spark in me, which, which never went out. How did you first come to start writing down stories of the people there? It was 10 years after my first trip to the Amazon that a friend showed me a documentary that he'd made, which showed that the Ecuadorian government was in the process of uh, auctioning three million hectares of uh, virgin rainforest to oil companies. And when I started to look into it, I found very little information available online in English. And I thought this was something that the world needed to know about. And so I was working as a magazine editor at the time and I quit my job and I focused entirely on trying to spread the word about um, what was happening here in Ecuador to, to the Amazon. And that's how I started writing about it and also um, interviewing indigenous defenders. So this brings us to our first of your recorded interviews. This is with someone who I think is now the president of the Sarayaku people. Have I said that right? Yes, Sarayaku, which means river of corn. Hemos vivido de de la selva, hemos vivido de de la Amazonía, vivimos de ella y pertenecemos. We have lived of the jungle, we have lived of the Amazon, we live of her, we belong to her. We have an interconnection between the jungle, the spirits of the jungle and the human being, which harmonizes life. We know that the trees, lakes and rivers have life, the same as us. We have an energy. This knowledge drives us to defend the jungle, as we would our own mother. We, our elders, my father, my uncles, 
The old leaders have said that, if it comes to it, we'll defend our territory with our lives, with our blood. I was so impressed because this man, Tupac Viteri Gualinga, um, was 28 years old at the time and he had no advance notice that I was going to interview him and he was just doing manual labour outside and I just hijacked him and asked him if I could interview him. And he sat down and I asked him the question about um, how his people see the Amazon rainforest and he gave me this beautiful answer and I was just gobsmacked really. So let's look a bit more deeply into the into that vision. What's the importance of the sable tree? The sable tree is um, one of the biggest trees that you can find in the Amazon. Um, and for the Seikopai um, people, it's the most sacred tree of all because according to their cosmovision, this is where the spirits of the jungle live. The spirits of the jungle live in the gigantic sable trees where hardly anybody even walks. So these are the most sacred parts of the jungle. And according to the Amazonian Cosmovision, these spirits are invisible to most people, but they are the, the beings who regulate um, fertility and abundance in the Amazon and create harmony. And when there's any kind of exploitation in the Amazon, these powerful spirits um, lose their homes and they leave. That's amazing, Beth. I think you've got a more detailed description of what these intriguing spirits are actually like. They're, they're rarely glimpsed, I think, even by the people of the forest. Isn't, is that right? Yes. Um, so I asked my friend Jimmy Piowahe about the spirits of the jungle who live in the sable trees, and this is what he said. Bueno, yo... It is rare to see the spirits of the jungle, but I have felt them when I've been hunting. They live in gigantic sabo trees in the very deep jungle where no one goes. Those who have seen them, people who go fishing at night, say that they're in the form of humans, about one and a half metres tall, with the nose, eyes and talons of an eagle. They have legs like humans, but are covered in black feathers. All the people who have seen them describe them like that. And when the spirits fly, they always use the wind, strong winds, to soar. When there is any kind of exploitation in the jungle, these spirits lose their homes and they leave. And uh, actually, Jessica, I spoke to um, Jimmy yesterday um, and I asked him um, for more information about this tree, which is so sacred to his people. Um, and he told me that the spirit of the wind is called Yuri, and Yuri lives in a gigantic sable tree. And um, he said that this spirit is so powerful that not just anybody can encounter it without being frightened. And that's why they have so much respect um, for the trees, because they provide homes for these spirits. And he said, the elders call the sabo tree the house of ghosts, because it is the home of all of these spirits. The sable tree in their language is known as Watiwe, which means house of spirits. He says he's never seen a sabo tree being cut down or anybody growing food next to a sabo tree because they have so much respect for the spirits who live there. That's really interesting and moving. At the beginning of this podcast, we heard people talking about the protests at HS2 and they think that there are living beings in the trees as well, but they're not quite so dramatic as the ones that you've just described. 
Now, I understand that it's not just the Indigenous people that you're involved with who take these spirit and this vision of the universe seriously. It's also part of Ecuadorian law now. Would you mind describing to me how that came about? Yes, so according to the Amazonian Cosmovision, the most advanced form of knowledge on Earth is the ability to not only see the invisible beings and spirits of the forest, but to communicate with them. And the people who have that knowledge are their shamans. And one of the groups I work with, um, Sadayaku, the man I interviewed um, for Writers Rebel, Jose Gualinga, his father is um, the most eminent Sadayaku shaman. In the 1990s, um, the Ecuadorian government allowed an Argentinian oil company to prospect for oil in Sadayaku territory without asking them or even informing them, so that the first they knew about it was when helicopters landed in their territory and armed men invaded their territory um, and oil workers placed dynamite under the, the earth to discover whether or not they could find oil there. And for 10 years, the Sadayeku launched a legal battle against the Ecuadorian government for, for permitting this. And finally, in 2012, they reached the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And the most powerful part of the court case was when Don Sabino Gualinga, the Yachak, who was then 92, Um, took the witness stand um, and he was asked about the impact of the over a thousand kilograms of explosives that had been planted in their territory and he spoke about the invisible beings that had been disturbed by the explosions and he said half of the masters of the jungle are no longer there this is a living forest there are trees and medicinal plants and all kinds of beings many hid others died when it burst They are the ones who maintain the jungle, the forest. All of those who wish to cause damage, they don't understand what they are doing. We do understand it because we see it. And that was a turning point in the court case. And um, it was found, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights found that the company's destruction of the trees and the sacred beings... Uh, was a violation of their human rights. They found that this cosmovision was an intangible heritage of Ecuador. And they found that the Ecuadorian government had violated the Sadiaco's human rights um, when they allowed the oil company to prospect in their territory. And the Ecuadorian government had to um, make amends and apologise and pay a fine. Is it now enshrined in Ecuadorian law? Well... The rights of nature are enshrined in the Ecuadorian constitution. Actually, Ecuador was the first country in the world to enshrine the rights of nature in the constitution. Um, so it was really groundbreaking at the time. But sadly, they do not respect this and they go against their own constitution daily, it seems, without any repercussions. For example, it's also considered ethnocide, according to the Ecuadorian constitution, to exploit for oil in the territories of uncontacted peoples. There are still two uncontacted groups who live in the Yasigni National Park, 
yet the government is exploiting for, for oil in their territory, which goes against the constitution and also international law. So Beth, can you explain to me what the Kausak Saka Declaration is? Following the court case, the Sarayaku people went even further and created the Kausak Sacha project. Kausak Sacha means living jungle. And they assert that as a living entity, the jungle is subject to legal rights, the same as a human being. I think it's rather beautiful. Would you mind reading just the first paragraph of it? The living forest, a living and conscious being, the subject of rights. We, the people of Sarayaku, have for generations fought for freedom and resisted against external aggression, invasion and colonisation. We are the Sarayaku Runa, descendants of the Jaguar. We are the original habitants of the Bobonasa, Pastasa and Maranyon watersheds, along whose rivers the Tayaks, bearers of a millennial wisdom, navigated, naming all the places they found along the way. And as well as the Kalsak Sacha Declaration, another part of the Kalsak Sacha project is called the Sisa Nampi, which is the border of flowering trees, which the Sariyaku are planting around their entire territory to represent their peaceful resistance to oil exploitation. Thank you very much, Beth. That was wonderful. If you've been moved by this story, you can support a new NGO being set up by one of the people we heard interviewed just now. It's a GoFundMe project that you'll find in the episode description on the website. So, so far we've heard of brave people defending trees both in this country and in the Amazon uh, against great odds and often putting themselves in danger. But we're going to end the episode on a really positive note. The following is an extract from an interview that Marijn van der Geer, who's an old friend of the podcast, of course, did on Rebel Radio. She did it with Natasha Summers and Mark Shipperley from XR Rewilding, uh, who both set up the Save the Oaks campaign. In November 2019, the government announced a tree planting programme to help meet its carbon commitments. Many commercial nurseries decided to be entrepreneurial and plant a lot of oak trees. And then COVID came along and transformed our lives. And it looked as if half a million trees would be mulched instead of cared for. We begin with Tash. So a little bit of history. The, the project's um, called Save the Oaks. And you can see it at um, all the w's.savetheoaks.org. And the, the project started off the back of a Times article in the first lockdown, where it was actually 750,000 oak trees, sapling oak trees, were going to be, inverted commas, burnt. I think that's a little bit of poetic license by the journalist. But anyway, it, it did the right thing in, in the sense that it it triggered a response in, in, in a lot of people, uh, including myself. I actually saw the article had been posted on the XR Rewilding. Um, and I, I, I can honestly say I felt physical pain um, at the thought of this happening. Uh, so I got in contact with um, James Murray White. Um, he's one of the co-founders of um, XR Rewilding, and he actually set up. He 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 obviously had a very very similar reaction and just set up a crowdfund. You know, just, let's just set up a crowdfund quick. You know, let's do something, um, which was just such a beautiful response. You know, it's just like let's just do it. You know, very let's just act now. All right. Um, so 
that was set up and you know people started to donate and 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 uh, you know offer to help so um not having huge amounts of knowledge myself on the tree planting side um james has lots of wonderful friends like mark who really know what they're talking about so that everyone was sort of rallied around and a, a coordinating group was sort of set up and so we threw up a website we all did lots of facebook sharing and stuff like that and eventually the word started to get around that we were we were looking to raise some money and negotiate with the nursery to save as many of these beautiful trees as we could so here we are um what is that nearly a year later not quite yeah um and we have raised and still um raising money um which uh, we would like some more of please uh, yes. so if there's anyone out there who can't physically plant trees or can who just or just thinks this is great we've saved 30,000 so far there are many many more to save we want to save more and as i said we can't buy more trees unless we get more money yeah we've been negotiating with the um with, with the nursery who and they're lovely lovely people and um you know we've we got a really good price and people say well why you know why are you paying for them and well actually you know what none of this is their fault and you know i think mark will back me up and say that 22p for a oak tree is 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 pretty good value yeah yeah. so yeah so that's where we are we're just about to distribute our first round of thirty thousand trees surely if you're the government and you hear that may law has five hundred thousand trees they're about to get destroyed surely you can find somewhere to plant these trees i mean is it is it really that bad the red tape that this just simply i mean come on it must be possible for the government of a country to be able to do this we do we have mechanisms we have grants around woodland creation and this sort of thing but it's um there is red tape around it but also that's a heck of a lot of trees. I mean, the good thing about social distancing is we'll get decent spacing between the oak trees if people can't That's can't true. get closer than two metres. So, you know, if you imagine each oak tree could actually be four or five metres apart for for major spacing. Well, you think that amount of land, that's a significant amount of land in any one place. So, And also, Maylor will have been growing to order for people who were organised and knew they were going to be planting this winter anyway and last winter. So those orders will have gone. This was the stuff on spec that the government was presuming there'd be a trigger of extra grants, increase, that sort of thing. And that's what didn't come to fruition. Woodland creation, that sort of thing, is really being encouraged more and more. The, the whole carbon credits thing is being discussed and, and locking down carbon. So we're, the communications are coming through. The whole thing about what happens now we're out of Europe and how we fund farming and land management could all change and that could represent an increase in tree growth and planting as well. So, so we're on a move, but we're in a bit of an unknown territory and that hasn't been helped particularly by this, this imbalance between the expectation three years ago that things were going to change and then they didn't change in time. So up in the northeast here, I had over a thousand trees requested in 24 hours. So if you do decide to support your community groups, be ready. Because, yeah, it's catching people's imagination because it's something serious. Imagine planting something that your great, great, great grandchildren will be able to stand under, gather the acorns and then plant again for their great, great, great grandchildren. You know, it's just a phenomenal thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, that's an amazing thought. And, and also trying to help save the lives of those great, great, great grandchildren by providing them with trees that will 
give them air and absorb all the horrible carbon dioxide and, and all the other amazing things that old established trees are doing for us for free without us having to pay them or worry about their pensions. <laughs> They're just doing it. Yep. Yeah. And, and the service they give us to, to us mentally as well, right? Mm. You know, the service that they give us when we're around them and, you know, with varying degrees of connection from us as humans, some people don't hardly notice them, but they are present and they provide greatness to us. It's so good to end with a happy XOR story. It really is. We need as much good news as we can get. And Fergal, thank you so much for helping us out with this episode. Uh, you've been working with the pod team for quite a while now, and it was great to have the interview from the live stream and great to have you co-presenting. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, wonderful experience. Uh, great meeting so many uh, wonderful people on the ground. And if you actually like this podcast, uh, please, please like it. Also, you can subscribe to our future and backlog of episodes. And uh, why not uh, tell a friend? <laughs> yes, our backlog doesn't sound very sexy, but there's some great, there's some great interviews on there. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Extinction Rebellion podcast. Uh, keep your ears peeled because uh, on Hush Hush, we might have a very big author for the next episode of the Rebel Book Club. Uh, so that's just between you and I. And now I'm going to hand over to Fergal to end the episode. So we're going to end with my favourite part of the whole interview with uh, Dr. Larch. Uh, very emotional when we talk about the relationship between uh, humanity and the planet. We talked on the way here, uh, cycling together, about you were saying about people wanting to be ignorant, wanting to ignore it because it's more convenient. And there's truth in that, but there's also truth in the fact that, that on some level we all know. Yeah. Yeah, I get emotional. Um, we, we know exactly, we know what's going on. And so it's tapping into that. And like, it's really painful to suppress that. So that's what a lot of people are dealing with is suppressing that pain because they don't want to feel it. They don't want to live with that. And it's not an easy path to expose yourself to the climate emergency, but it's so much better for me personally than trying to suppress it, trying to pretend it's not there when it is. It's, it's in our face increasingly every day. So the more we can open up to that, actually it's, it's really liberating, you know. The research into well-being also shows about agency is vital to our well-being. So if we see this massive crisis and we feel helpless to do anything about it, mm -hmm. then... Um, then that's really disempowering and really bad for our well-being. But if we see this crisis and we feel like we can take action against it, then that can actually, it's much better for our well-being. So the last thing we should be doing with this climate emergency is, is sitting passively and ignoring it. We all need to take action, you know, for our personal well-being as well as our collective survival. Is clear. We are in an unprecedented Earth emergency. This is going to destroy the lives of millions of people around the this world. This is the challenge for all of humanity. This must stop now. Civil disobedience. Non-violence. This is a moment of choice. Decolonize, decarbonize. We're going to rebel. Scientific realism has to win. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion. Extinction rebellion.